hard to believe in um, the second coming of Christ. It's so strange and overwhelming to believe that next Wednesday the Lord might return and the world would come to an end. I don't think it's happening next Wednesday. William Lane Craig said that. William Lane Craig, he's a, uh, he's a Christian apologist. And a Christian apologist is like a person who like talks about Christianity and like tries to defend it in some kind of way. He's also a public theologian and, um, and philosopher. And I don't know if anybody was like me a decade ago, but, but a decade ago my life was listening to William Lane Craig um, debates with new atheists like Richard Dawkins and, and uh, Christopher Hitchens and stuff like that. It's like what I was doing when I was 19. It's so cool I was. Um, yeah, so he says this, right? He says, um, he says, it's strange and overwhelming to believe that that could be true and the whole world as we know it could come to an end. He goes on to say that, and this is just in a conversation he was having at a lecture in Ireland. He goes on to say that um, in, um, in modern quantum physics, there's discussions about how like a small like variation in, um, in quantum mechanics in like one equation could, would actually like change like the whole world as we know it in the flash of an eye, right? And in, in, uh, in, in like as fast as the speed of light, the whole cosmos would shift. And uh, that's just like, and, and that could happen Wednesday, next Wednesday is what he said. It's a really interesting thought to think that in the world of science, like the world could change in an instant. But to think of that um, in the world of theology, it's, uh, it's, just, it's just odd and, and strange and then sometimes overwhelming to contemplate. He's not suggesting that the apostles 2,000 years ago understood um, like quantum physics. That would be a silly thing to suggest. And he's not saying that in the writing of scripture that that's probably what they're referring to uh, when they talk about kind of the end of the world and the beginning of a new world order. But the point I think he was trying to make is that um, things can change really fast. And uh, we live as though that's not true. But I think some of you have lived a life and experienced some things where your life changed in an instant, right? We have, we've been going through Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, through Advent. It's actually been a, an interesting text to study for Advent. I don't know if Ian's ever taught on Revelation 1, 8 for an Advent series before. Um, but it's actually, I think, been quite life-giving. We talked a lot about Trinitarian theology and, uh, and a few other things in the past. The, the verse reads like this. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So uh, what we learned about Revelation is that this is a book, it's an apocalyptic book that was um, written by an, uh, a disciple or an apostle named John, and uh, he was receiving a vision from God. So this is, this is what he says God is saying to him, and, uh, and what he means by that is that Jesus is saying that to him. So this is his, this is his understanding of, of the identity of Jesus. I am the Alpha and Omega, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. This morning, we're going to look at the... Um, the who is to come, the Almighty. Back in the spring, I had, a, uh, I, had a, I had an interview with the governing body of our denomination here at Southside. We're part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance in Canada. And like most denominations, you need to go through some sort of like licensing process in order for them to recognize you as a, a licensed worker or um, in order to be kind of a lead pastor of a church that uh, is within that denomination. When, if, if you're unfamiliar with the process, think of like passing the bar in law, right? You can go to law school and you can do your LSATs or whatever, but in order to practice law, 
at least is, is in Canada too, you have to parse, pass some sort of bar, right? I'm just familiar with suits, right? Anybody familiar with suits? That's all I know about law. That's the extent of my knowledge, right? There's suits fans in the room, huh? Okay. Harvey Specter is like the man. Anyway. So that's when you think of it, think of it like that. We have a denomination in Canada. There's about 500-ish churches in Canada and has done kind of work all over the world, thousands of churches all over the world they've been a part of, of starting. This exam is, uh, it can be strenuous. It's, uh, there's a written portion of it. You tell your story, you tell your background, you answer a bunch of like questions about the Bible, you answer questions about theology and doctrine, you answer questions like, what would you do if this happened kind of thing. They really want to see if, if you're uh, fit and qualified to be uh, a pastor in, in their movement. And part of the process is actually an interview with an uh, administrative board and then uh, other licensed pastors within the district. And so um, I did that. I did, I did my first one in, in, the, in the spring. Now, I've never done anything like this. I've never, I've never done one of these exams. It was pretty nerve-wracking going into it. I thought I was pretty well equipped to go into it. I had a lot of confidence, but that's not shocking to you. Um, so I'm, I go into this thing thinking, I've got this. Um, it's with a board of people I've never met before, and it's on Zoom. So there's already like this weird barrier there. The other thing to note about it is like you don't get notes. You just get a Bible. You don't get to bring your notes with you. You, you don't get to go reference anything. You just have to know the things off the top of your head, right? So, um, so it, you know, it's a, it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty, can be an intense process depending on who the interviewers are, right? And uh, so the interview, it started off decently. I thought I was doing a passable job. And uh, then we reached a point in the interview where um, we talked about the distinctives for the Christian Missionary Alliance. If uh, the distinctives, what I mean by that is like, what makes the Christian Missionary Alliance different than the Presbyterians, right? We're all Christians. We love Jesus. We work together. We serve Jesus. We celebrate Christmas, yada, yada, yada. But there's something different. You don't go there. You go here. Or I'm not a pastor there. I I couldn't be um, because there are different denominations, distinctives between the two. And one of the main distinctives for the Christian and Missionary Alliance is something called the fourfold gospel. Now, I think a lot of Christians would agree with the fourfold gospel or, or the aspects of the fourfold gospel, but, but the Christian Missionary Alliance, like history is built on a man named A.B. Simpson who like this was the flag he flew. And it's actually representative in our, um, in our logo there. And so there's four elements to it. It's basically saying that the gospel is um, multiple things at the same time and Jesus is multiple things at the same time. The first is that Jesus is the savior. So that's what the cross is. And you may, if you come from any like evangelical background, you're very familiar with Jesus as savior. Jesus died on the cross to save you for your sins. He's your savior, right? So that's the first aspect of the fourfold gospel. The second is Jesus as sanctifier, which I think is the cup on the right, right, John? I'm supposed to know this, right? It's, what do we call it? A laver. Okay, it's not a cup, it's a laver. And uh, yeah, I, this was a while ago that I had to study for this exam, right? Yeah, just like any exam, right? So, um, so you get the laver, and, that, and that's representative of uh, Christ, uh, Jesus as sanctifier. And so the idea is that um, Jesus, Jesus sanctifies. He's not only saves you, but he's constantly making you clean and sanctifying you, making you into his likeness in some kind of way. And then the third is Jesus as healer. In the Christian Missionary Alliance, we believe that Jesus can actually heal us for the sake of the mission. And so um, that's representative of the, what do we call, what do we call it? Yeah. The jug of water. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to get this wrong. I don't want to lose my credentials over this. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, you, you guys. <laughs> so anyway, whatever the one of the, the thing, the gravy boat, gravy boat. Right? Um, is, that, is that crossing the line? Am I done? What's that? Oh, the healing oil. Right. Is that me? Sorry. Okay. Anyway, we're going to get there. The last one. I fluffed on the last one. The crown. I knew it was king. I knew it was king. Jesus is king. And they asked me, they said, what's the last one? I said, Jesus is king. And, uh, and they said, what kind of king? And I said, uh, the really good king? <laughs> I was like, I was honestly, I was like, uh, what are they getting at here? So I'm sitting there, I'm starting to sweat. And the guy who's asking me is like, he's not giving me any space here. He's like, what kind of king? I said, the benevolent king. And he said, nope. And I said, the king of kings. Nope. I'm like, uh-oh, I'm toast. Anyway, I semi-failed the interview. <laughs> um, they didn't call it a fail. They called it a deferral. And we took it again, and we passed, so we're okay. But um, the fourth thing, the crown represents Jesus as coming king. As coming king. I know, you're like, oh, it's all the same, right? Why is it so important? Why is it so important? Who was and is and is to come. One of the litmus tests for orthodoxy, uh, which means to think about Jesus, in the Christian traditions, orthodoxy is thinking about Jesus the correct way, the way that we've all agreed as a community is the right way to think about Jesus. So, so one of the litmus tests for orthodoxy, both in Protestant traditions and Catholic traditions, and even Orthodox traditions, are, um, is uh, this, uh, one of the early creeds, the Apostles' Creed. Have you heard of this thing before? It's a, it's a creed, it's basically a statement of faith that was written down like in the fourth century by the, uh, by the kind of the early church in Rome. They said these are kind of the main things. These are the non-negotiables kind of things. This was one of the things that they, uh, that they wrote down and they, and they established. And we've been, we've been living in accordance with that ever since. And, uh, and so I'm going to read that for you. The Apostles' Creed, we're going to read it together. It says... Uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the everlasting life. Amen. In the Alliance, we have a doctrinal statement. And the doctrinal statement on uh, the return of Jesus reads like this. Uh, it's the, the second coming of Jesus is kind of its title. It says, The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent, and personal and, uh, and, and visible. As the believer's blessed hope, this vital truth is an incentive for holy living and sacrificial service toward the completion of Christ's commission. In other words, uh, we believe that Jesus is coming back. We believe that Jesus is coming back in bodily form, which will end kind of the, the era of the way things are as we know it and will establish the kingdom of heaven on earth in its fullness and perfection for eternity. That is a squarely orthodox understanding of Jesus, and it's all through the New Testament that this promise uh, is to be expected. Almost every Catholic, 
almost every Orthodox, almost every Protestant Christian and Christian leader uh, is in agreement on this statement. And one of the primary texts that we actually get this from is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. Uh, what we're going to read here, just so you have a little bit of context and understanding, uh, this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church uh, in the city of Thessalonica. It's a church that kind of uh, he started, and then and then you know things were things were going rough, and then things started to go well, and he wanted to send them to a, a letter of encouragement, even though they were having some struggles. He wanted to encourage them in in their faith. They were experiencing in Thessalonica, particularly, they were experiencing a lot of pressure and persecution. Uh, this was a very Roman city, and so the Roman Christians were were basically uh, signing over allegiance to Jesus instead of Caesar and, and signing over allegiance to Jesus instead of kind of the, the Roman kind of um, cult. And so the, um, they were experiencing a lot, of, a lot of pressure and a lot of persecution for that. But what's interesting is that the church actually thrived in that scenario. You'd think that the church would die in that scenario if people are, are experiencing a lot of pressure and fear and, and are actually being martyred and killed for their faith. But in Thessalonica, the church was actually thriving. And Paul, in, earlier in their letter, he, um, he attributes that to their faithfulness, to their faithfulness and uh, to their love for one another and to their, their discipline lifestyle of love is what he attributes that to. Earlier in chapter 4, uh, Paul, he addresses this call uh, to holiness. He calls, he calls them to, um, to double down on holiness. He calls them to double down on purity, particularly um, sexual purity. Where they were in Thessalonica, there was, um, was kind of like a Roman sex cult like temple there, and, and so like sexual promiscuity was the, was the norm. It was common there. And, and Christians, they were, they were countercultural because they lived, you know, pure, sexually pure, uh, monogamous uh, lifestyles. That's that's what they were, they were known for. And Paul says, double down on that because that's really, really good. And it's, and, it's, and it's actually why your movement is growing in spite of all the persecution. There also was like a, just a spirit of um, hedonism in Thessalonica, like especially there. A pursuit of money, a pursuit of power, a pursuit of pleasure. And Paul, he reminds the church in this letter, he reminds them that true riches are found in like the simple. They're found in the faithful. They're found in the holy lifestyle according to the ethics of Jesus. You can think back to the Beatitudes that we studied for the whole fall. Think about that kind of Jesus's ethic there. They, if they were living into that, then, um, then that was going to uh, bode them well, even though uh, things were, were challenging. He, he's saying to them like, true riches are actually found in that lifestyle. They're not found in the material pursuit. They're not found in sexual promiscuity. They're not found in the pursuit of power at any cost. They're actually found in like simple, faithful, holy lifestyles. He also reminds the Christians to keep working hard. The men and women, he says, keep working hard and keep being a man and woman of your word because that really mattered. Christians were set apart for being somebody who said they'd do something and did it, right? Shocking, right? You say you're going to do something and you do it. Does anybody have a 20-year-old in your home? Yeah. Sorry, Jacob. Yeah. Working hard and following through with your commitment was actually something they were known for in contrast to their, to their community, as well as serving with generosity and care. The church was also asking questions about death. They were like, what happens when we die? What happens to my friend who did die or my relative? Uh, they were experiencing pers uh, persecution and, and not just like people making fun of them. Like their relatives, some of them were being jailed and some of them were being killed for just living the Christian ethic and telling people about the gospel, right? And so they're like, God, where's the hope in this? You know, my brother died just because he stood by Jesus. 
And, uh, and so he, uh, here in verse 13 through 17, understand that that's actually the backdrop, the direct backdrop. It says in verse 13 here, chapter 4, he says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that those who do not grieve like the rest of mankind, who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Many Christian teachers in the last century, in particular in North America, they've misunderstood this text to refer to some sort of um, kind of rapture that will take the believers away from earth into some um, disembodied heavenly experience of some sort. And uh, they've argued about whether that'll happen before a tribulation period, in the middle of a tribulation period, or after a tribulation period. But the imagery in this text actually lends itself better to, um, to King Jesus actually establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, the language that he's using here is actually um, a first century person would have understood that when Caesar came to town and established his power and rule in the city, you would go outside the city gates to meet him, and then you would usher him in along with you. And so the imagery is actually um, the body of Christ meeting Jesus in the clouds and then ushering in together the kingdom reign of Jesus. Paul's encouragement following these verses to the end of the letter is what I want us to slow down on this morning, and I want us to kind of camp there. As we lead into Christmas, uh, the celebration of Jesus' coming incarnate for the first time is, uh, is what we're paying attention to. That happened in the past. But we also, in Christmas, in this season, we should be uh, thinking about and considering what it means to live as a follower of Jesus with anticipation of his second coming. That's what we've been doing through Advent. We, we light the candles because we consider the moments leading up to the initial coming of Jesus, and we also light the candles because we anticipate the future coming of Jesus. Uh, Paul, you'll see here that um, Paul doesn't suggest that the church in this season of anticipation and waiting come up with elaborate schemes using numbers and weird symbols to predict the exact day that Jesus is going to come back. I don't know what kind of tradition you grew up in. Did anybody grow up in a tradition where it was like prophecy watch and there was like 17 predictions in your lifetime and none of them came true? Yeah. It's not what Paul suggested the church should do. Paul also doesn't suggest the church should, um, should take up arms against the evil regimes of communism and capitalism with violence and force. It's actually not his recommendation. As, as things were coming to an end, he wasn't saying, hey, uh, fight everybody who you disagree with. He doesn't command the church to flee to the wilderness and to build bunkers underground and stock ammunition. He doesn't tell the believers to live their best life 
and enjoy every fleshly pleasure because when Jesus comes back, the kingdom is going to be really boring and lame. He also doesn't say, shop till you drop. He doesn't suggest that you stack away that 8.5% every year and then get a return on it so that you can live your best life in retirement. It's not what Paul's saying here. None of those are bad things. But this is what Paul says it looks like to live in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus. He's very clear about it, and that is the exact context of the verse that we're going to continue reading, which is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is what Paul says. And you can look at the screen, because there will be some of the main points up there. He says, But you, brothers and sisters, just after he told them that they should expect the coming of Jesus at some point in the future, he says, You're not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all children of the light, and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Verse 6, he says, So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. I just ruined Christmas for some of you guys, huh? I'm, I'm just reading. I'm just reading. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are asleep or awake, we may live together with him. Verse 11, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Just in fact, just in fact, as you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, verse 12, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Verse 16, Paul says, rejoice always. In 17, he says, pray continually. In 18, he says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Verse 19, he says, don't quench the spirit. Don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all and hold on to what's good. In 22, he says, reject all kind of evil. He goes on to say, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, body, and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. He finishes off the whole letter by saying, Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I gave Luis a holy kiss on the way in this morning, because he gave me a holy kiss the other day, and I said, No, don't do that. That's weird. And then I have to, right? It's like, thanks. Thanks, God. So I had to. You were right. You were right. He says, I charge you before the Lord. It's not permission to just go kissing everyone. We need room. We need space. Like, <laughs> you just, he's just going to start quoting this over and over. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming like a, a kiss that's really holy. 
I'm, 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 the picture is like when you see your brothers and like what we would think of as a handshake or a nice hug that's meaningful. Yeah. They would actually, yeah. A lot of traditions still do that. Yeah. The Brazilians still, right? That's, that's the core of the culture, right? We've lost it in the West, but they have it. So it's a good thing. Anyway, <laughs> good question. He says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. And he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Growing up, uh, I wasn't into theater. I was the kid who threw baseballs, dodgeballs, and snowballs at the theater kids. Wasn't the nicest guy. <laughs> Ashton, my wife, she introduced me to theater. She, um, she loves all experiences. If you know anything about Ashton, she loves experiences. She loves sporting events, and she loves theater. She loves any kind of public show where they display like a level of expertise that just leaves you in awe. And she likes witnessing it as an audience member. Ashton has always loved experiences. It's one of the things I actually love the most about her. And she leads her family in that, and it's amazing. And so she, um, she introduced me to theater. Recently, we went down to, uh, to see the Harry Potter show at, um, at Mervish. We had listened to all the books on our drive across the country. Well, some of the books, most of them, and then some of our road trips to Indiana where Ashton's family lives, we've been listening to, to the books. And so we, uh, we, we bought some tickets like three years ago for the show. Um, then COVID hit and then it put on delay. And we finally got to go for her birthday this last October. I find theater incredible. I find it wild. The perfect execution, the timing, the memorization, the technical meets the athletic, meets the artistic and musical. It's, it's actually incredible to me. And I feel like I missed out on something and probably traumatized a lot of kids when I was younger. But I can be an impatient dude. I'm Dutch. Any Dutch people in the room? Thanks, Mom. I can be very impatient. And so, um, so we took our seats. And I can't sit still when I'm, when I'm there. And I couldn't sit still, right? I'm like eager, I'm looking around, I'm trying to get clues as to when this thing's gonna start, when it's gonna happen, what's, I'm trying to like figure out like what's happening backstage, I'm checking my, my watch and they're four minutes like overtime, like the past when the starting time and I'm like getting stressed, I'm thinking something's wrong, maybe we have to fix something, I'm looking at the ushers, I'm trying to react, like figure out what they're doing and, and, and react to kind of their body language just to, just to know how I should feel and whether I should calm down or whether I should like get ready to save everybody in the movie theater. I'm just like antsy, I'm antsy, right? sitting here waiting for this curtain to be drawn. Four minutes, yeah, four minutes, yeah. Longest four minutes of my life. Ashton has to tell me to relax a lot. In all my limited experience with theater, the lights have always come on, right? The lights always come on, the low ambient music always builds, it has always gotten there, and eventually the curtain is drawn. And uh, from that moment on, I'm just glued. I am glued, leaning forward the whole way through. I love the way Tom Wright talks about Revelation 1. Talks about this in regards to the one who was and is and is to come. He talks about the kingdom. He said, the kingdom is like waiting for the kingdom and anticipating the kingdom is like waiting in your seat at theater, at at a show. You're just sitting there anticipating what's to come. He said this in his commentary. I'll read it for us. I'll read the first part. The second part will be on the screen. He says, Everything that is to come flows from the central figure, Jesus himself, and ultimately from God the Father, he who is and who was and who is to come. 
Even in the short opening, John manages to unveil a good deal of what he believes about God and Jesus and about the divine plan. God is the Almighty, the beginning and the end. Other lords and rulers will claim similar titles, but there is only one God to whom they belong. And Jesus is the one who, through his death and his resurrection, has accomplished God's purpose. His love for his people, his liberation of them by his self-sacrifice, his purpose for them, not just to rescue them, but to put them to important work in his service. And not least, Jesus is the one who will soon return to complete the task, to set up his rule on earth as it is in heaven. Nobody in the first century knew exactly when Jesus would return. We still await that moment today. But Christian living, and indeed belief in this one God, only makes sense on the assumption that he will indeed come to set everything right at last. We settle in our seats, put other concerns out of our minds, and wait for the curtain to rise. We wait by practicing the ways of Jesus. We wait by wherever we are, whatever season we're in, whoever we are, however old or young that we are, we wait in anticipation by practicing the ways of Jesus, by following the ethics of Jesus, by living into the simple and beautiful and good life that we've been called to. And so my invitation, church, in this Christmas season, as we're heading into Christmas in a week from now, is for you to look back and celebrate the coming of Jesus, and then see yourself in the middle of a story that does have a future. And to know that your role is to not do anything spectacular necessarily. It's not really to wow anybody with the best gift at the party. It's not maybe necessarily to fix everything and set everything right. Your role is to actually be non-anxious, to be patient, to be calm, to sit back, to pray, to rejoice, to give thanks for all things, to work hard, to acknowledge those who work hard and serve you, to stay sober-minded and pay attention to what's going on, but live in faith and hope and love in your life. Our goal is to not be lazy or disruptive. That's not what we're called to, but it is to love, to live in peace, to forgive easily and quickly, to help those who are weak and encourage those who are lowly in spirit. This is the word of God teaching us this. And to do good to each other, to pray more than you already do. And if you're really bold, to greet a friend with a holy kiss. That's what we're called to in anticipation of the waiting of our Lord. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Lord, um, we get drawn to the spectacular. We get drawn to the theater show. We get drawn to the incredible, the amazing, and... Um, and what we want to do is we want to center ourselves. We want to be on main stage at theater. We want to be the star of the show. And what you've called us to is actually to just be patient audience members of the work that you're doing. We have a role. We have a seat to sit in. We have, um, like, there's standards for us to live by. And that's very clear. 
but you've not called us to be the center of the show. You've called us to just live in our calling and in our role as we anticipate your return, who is the center. You are the center of the story. It is all about you. It was about you 2,000 years ago, and it still is about you, and it will be about you in the future. You are God, and we are not. So as we go into this Christmas season, let that actually um, give us more peace than we're used to. It's so much more freeing not feeling like we got to be the center of anything. It's so much more freeing when we don't feel like we have to perform to know that our hard work, our love, our generosity, and our peacemaking is sufficient and it's actually forming us into the best version of ourselves and providing for us the best kind of life that we can live. Help us trust in that. Help us find joy in that. Help us rejoice in that. We thank you for a community here in Milton to do that around and alongside. We thank you for the families that we get to spend time with this season, no matter how easy or difficult that may be. And we pray that your grace is with us, and your mercy is sufficient for us, and your love and the presence of your Holy Spirit is with us in all the things that we go into this next week in a bit. Thank you, Jesus, for the life that you've called us to and that you've offered us through your salvation. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.